If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Grant Raw. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This is our Women's World Cup podcast with me and Sports Illustrated's Lakin Littman. We'll be publishing podcast episodes after every U.S. game during the tournament. I'll also be interviewing Caitlin Murray about her terrific book, The National Team, on the history of the U.S. women's national team. While we've got you, make sure to check out our podcast series, Throwback, on the origin stories of the U.S. women's team and the FIFA Women's World Cup. That's Throwback. You won't regret it. Onward! Okay, let's bring in Lakin Littman from New York to talk about this record-breaking 13 to nothing victory by the U.S. over Thailand in the first game of the Women's World Cup for the U.S. Lakin, how are you doing? Um, I'm pretty good, Grant. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm tired from keeping track of all of the goals that the U.S. scored tonight. Uh, it was pretty incredible. The previous record for the most lopsided game in, in World Cup history was 11 nothing Germany over Argentina. Um, and this was 13 to nothing. And... Alex Morgan had five goals. She only had one goal in all of World Cup 2015. Um, as you were watching this, Lakin, what was going through your mind? Uh, well, after, at halftime, you know, the U.S. was leading 3 nothing, and it seemed like they had left a lot of goals just on the table. There were a couple scrambles right before halftime that they just couldn't knock in. And then to score 10 goals in the second half, I was just like, are, are they going to stop? <laughs> I mean, right, right when it was seven nothing, I was like, okay, you know, this is it'll probably it'll just you know play keep away or um, you know substitute more. Um, but then Carly Lloyd comes in, you're like, well, she's not not scoring, um, and of right. course she did. And um, you know, I'm watching here at the office, and everyone is now cheering for Thailand <laughs> to score <laughs> and uh, try to defend and. Um, it was just wild. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting and I put in just kind of my three observations that we posted was obviously the U.S. is going to be and probably already has started getting criticized for piling up the, uh, the goals. But, you know, 
earlier this year they were criticized for not blowing out lesser opponents. So it's like, pick one, people. Um, you know, I think they are trying to defend their title. They had the opportunities to score a lot of goals, and they did. So I think that this was a really exciting game to watch. Um, I think the U.S. will also get criticized for celebrating every single goal. But, you know, this team is excited. They, they again, they want to win another World Cup, and um, this was a good first step in doing that. So I'm actually recording this from the press conference that room that where it just ended where uh, Jill Ellis the US coach and Alex Morgan came in and answered questions and it's sort of fascinating to me so Lakin you cover college football also as another one of the sports you cover that seems to me like uh, another sport where the topic of running up the score comes up from time to time I compared Jill Ellis to Tom Osborne in uh, uh, a Twitter post tonight which probably makes everyone think I'm 75 years old <laughs> but um this is a situation here where there are two topics in my mind, and, and I asked both Alex Morgan and Jill Ellis about this tonight after the game. Uh, the first topic is, why did you keep scoring goals? And the, their response was very straightforward. Goal difference matters in the group. That is the, uh, the first tiebreaker if you have a tie at the end of your group with a team. And so the U.S. could very well have a tie with Sweden at the end of this group stage. And if you want to win the group, you have to have the better goal difference in that situation. Uh, now, then the other question is, how much do you celebrate, right? And so it's one thing to keep scoring until you've scored 13 goals. Some people would say it's another thing to continue doing these huge team celebrations uh, as a result. You know, it reminds me of... Um, yeah, was it Walter Payton who, when he used to score a touchdown, would a lot of times just hand the ball to the ref? You know, so like, and that's that's another question. And so at Alex Morgan, I asked about that, and she said, you know, look, World Cups don't happen very often. This is a dream of ours to get to a World Cup, and when you score a goal in a World Cup, you you want to celebrate that. You don't know how many times in your life that opportunity is going to come around. Um, so that was her take on that. Personally, if I were out there, I don't think I would be celebrating as hard for goal number 12 and 13 as I was for goal number three. That's just me. But interestingly, I also asked a couple of the Thai players. I asked the Thai coach and uh, Miranda Nil, their starting forward, if they had any issues with the, the U.S. scoring so many goals or continuing to celebrate, and they didn't. So... Um, they don't have any issues. I fully expect columnists in America to already be writing columns about uh, this was unsportsmanlike, though, and I'm curious to see if this story follows the U.S. at all. Their next game against Chile, they could be in a similar situation where they score a lot of goals. For sure. And, yeah, like what you said about college football, I mean, I think immediately about Alabama and Clemson playing FCS schools to start you know, their season, or even you know, Alabama traditionally plays – a lesser opponent at the end of the year um, before they before they play Auburn, and it's just you know when you're winning you're beating opponents by 50 points they don't even get you know they get a little criticism here and there but I feel like the the stuff that's coming towards the U.S. women is going to be even even bigger than that. It's interesting though. Jill Ellis made another point on this topic. She said she didn't think 
in a men's soccer game in a World Cup, if the score was 10 nothing, that these questions would be asked. And I disagree with her on that, actually. I think I remember when Germany beat Saudi Arabia 8 nothing in the men's World Cup in 2002, and there were questions about whether the Germans had had run up the score and whether that was fair play, as they say, uh, in FIFA land over here. Um, I do recall that the Germans didn't celebrate as much after they scored goals six, seven, and eight. Maybe it is the cel- celebration factor. I mean, but also, isn't it funny? It's just like people complain about soccer in general. There aren't enough goals. And the, <laughs> the U.S. scores 13, and it's like, that's too many. So it's like people just need to make up their minds. <laughs> but I do understand the sportsmanship um, argument as well. But again, they are trying to win another World Cup, and are you just if you're in if you have the opportunity to score a goal, you got to score a goal. What else stood out to you about this game? Um, I think Alex Morgan um, in general. I mean, she scored five goals after her hat trick. I was like, well, she scored a hat trick. I can start writing about that. And then, <laughs> oh, then comes goal four and five. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, she only had one goal four years ago in the 2015 World Cup. Um, she, you know, was nursing a nagging injury. Jill Ellis had to limit her minutes, especially at the beginning of the tournament. And um, that was her second World Cup. But um, she wasn't her true self. You know, it seems Mm -hmm. like now she has the opportunity. You know, she's obviously on the cover of SI, cover of Time. I'm sure there's other magazines that that just aren't coming to mind right now. She's playing the best soccer of her life. She just last month scored, reached the 100 club, joining a very elite group of U.S. women's national team players to score 100 goals. Now she's far over that. And, you know, she needs to... Mentally, at least, we thought that she was going to come into the group stage and and score a lot of goals. I don't think we thought five in the first game. But I think mentally it's an important thing for her to prove to herself that she can do this at the World Cup because she has it before. Yeah. Now, Morgan and and Jill Ellis talked about wanting their team, their players to be feeling confident. And and after this game, it's pretty impossible not to feel confident, I would think. I, I will take a little bit of credit here for people who listened to the last podcast episode. I think I predicted Alex Morgan as the golden boot winner. And obviously, yes. we're only one game in here. But she's got two goals more than anyone else in the tournament. Uh, Cristiani had the hat trick for Brazil in the first game. Uh, and I think Alex could score more goals against Chile. I think I was said likely to get six in the first two games, but she could get more than that. She said actually her goal tonight was three coming in. Okay. Just three um, three in this game or three in the group stage? No, three in this game. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, in terms of anything else, I mean, there's honestly, I don't think there's a heck of a lot much more to say about this game except just a goal fest uh, in, in a World Cup and uh, you know, I, I was thinking coming in maybe five nothing. It ends up being thirteen nothing, uh, and so I hope. I guess I would say that I, I have a lot of respect for the Thailand players. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like to go through something like this. They were crying after the game. Mm-hmm. Um, the goalkeeper, I thought, uh, continued to make some actually decent saves in the second half, even as she was just letting in a ton of goals. Uh, they didn't quit, um, and. Even though th- this was such a lopsided game, I still think that 
the Women's World Cup should expand to 32 teams eventually. I think that's the only way to get more countries in the world to invest in their women's soccer programs. And there's going to be some nights like this along the way, even though this is the exception to what we've seen in this tournament so far in terms of competitiveness. You know, we've seen Italy beat Australia. We've seen Argentina get a point against Japan, which is kind of incredible considering Japan has been in the last two finals and Argentina um, had never gotten a point in a World Cup game before. Um, So I want to kind of seg a little bit into... My next question, which is just looking at the tournament so far, what's the biggest surprise result of this World Cup so far to you? Well, you kind of just hit on what I was going to say about that question, which was okay. Argentina getting or holding Japan to a, um, a 0-0 draw to earn its first ever World Cup point. I mean, we knew this Japan team was going to be different after some roster turnover, but I mean, for people who don't pay super close attention to women's soccer, I mean, Japan made it to back-to-back World Cup finals in 2011 winning and then you know losing to the U.S. in 2015 Um, but this was an Argentina team that I mean they had been outscored 33 to 2 in their previous um, World Cup matches and I mean everyone you think of Argentina and soccer you think of the men's side being you know world power and the women's side is is nothing like that but the fact that they were able um, you know to especially defensively keep Japan um, prevent them from from scoring when they had when they had uh, opportunities. I thought that was very impressive. I mean, Japan did control the game. A lot of the game was in um, Argentina's you know defensive half. Um, but they you know Japan they couldn't they couldn't break down Argentina's defense. And I thought that um, you know it, they're in a group with England and Scotland, and England's currently atop that group. And um, you know maybe maybe this makes the group that group a little bit more interesting. Yeah. I I mean, we had uh, Argentina's Gabi Garthon in the uh, last podcast in the interview section of it. And when I asked her what she wanted to achieve in this tournament, you know, she said, we want to get our first win. Uh, I think if she was being honest, she wasn't expecting a point even against Japan. And so, um, you know, Argentina's had to go through so much stuff, as she explained in that interview over the years, uh, just now getting a little bit of professionalization into their women's soccer at the club level there. Um, really having to fight the men who run the federation down there, just getting, you know, really no funding, no investment in the women's game. So, you know, it's not like Argentina played some great attacking game, but right. it's just absolutely stunning to me that they were able to get a point in the end over 90 minutes against Japan. And, and obviously, too, the Italy result, getting the injury time game winner uh to beat australia two to one um you know like this is a aside from the u.s game a more competitive world cup so far and (laughs) even the the game today between new zealand and and the netherlands i felt bad for new zealand because i thought they were going to get out of there with a point and you know the netherlands are the european champions and they had to really fight to get the the last minute goal there so on the whole i think i know people are going to in the U.S. be focused on this 13 to nothing score. But on the whole, this has been a more competitive World Cup than anything we've seen in a while. Um, I want to ask you, what is an intriguing trend that you're seeing so far in the tournament now that every team has played once? I think um, 
scoring off of set pieces, which I guess you could say is exactly the same kind of trend that we saw in the Men's World Cup last summer. Um, mm-hmm. I saw a stat, actually. I think that before the U.S. game, there had been uh, 23 goals scored, and about half of those were off of set pieces. I don't know hmm. if, if you saw that or not, but that was impressive. Um, and then the U.S. scored how? I mean, at least the one, the one in the first half, and then I totally like lost track of how all, each goal was scored. But um, I mean, there was also the one of the more dramatic ones that comes to mind so far uh, was Monday. Canada's 1-0 win, 1-0 win um, against Cameroon. Kadisha Buchanan had a header off of a corner that, that pushed Canada uh, to score, um, to win to win 1-0. Um, right. And I know that I think you had it in your in your story yesterday that Jill Ellis was asked about, um, you know, scoring off of set pieces given that it's a strength of the Americans. Um, and... I think um, I, how many? Did, I don't even remember how many did they did they score off. I mean, I know they had one on Tobin for, in the first half that there, uh, Lindsay yeah, Horan scored one on the free kick that Tobin Heath took that uh, fell to Horan who finished. Yeah. Um, there was at least one other set piece goal. Yeah. Um, no direct free kicks went in. No. But. Um, but yeah, it's clearly a weapon, and it, especially if, if they're U.S. and you're so much bigger <laughs> than a team like Thailand. I think that'll be the case as well against Chile. True. Um, but I also really like some of the designed, intricate set plays that we've seen so far from teams like France. Um, that was something that really stood out to me about uh, the French had some really cool stuff that they were doing that was a little like misdirection type things. And I wrote a whole long story about set pieces during the men's world cup last year about how the, the planning and the preparations and the study of co- by coaching staffs for set pieces has really increased in recent years to the point where you have analytics people like Ted Knudsen, who was the main figure in that story I wrote, um, making a business out of this. Uh, so if anyone wants to read that story, Google <laughs> Set Pieces Sports Illustrated World Cup. Um, but um, I think we're going to keep seeing that uh, because it seems like Ted always argues that this is like a really underexploited part of the game, uh, even today. Um, I would say an intriguing trend uh, that I'm seeing so far in this tournament is the South American teams are doing better than I expected. And, and we mentioned Argentina uh, Brazil actually performed better than I ex- expected they would against Jamaica. Cristiani gets the hat trick even without Marta on the field. Uh, and then Chile, I thought, played a, a better than expected game today for most of the game against Sweden. I thought they were going to get out of there with a point, ended up losing 2 nothing. Um, so I, I think there's going to be more surprises to come. Uh, in this tournament. I uh, wanted to wrap up by asking you, who's a player who has stood out to you that you didn't know about before? Honestly, I did not know anything about Italy's Barbara Bonancia. If I'm right. Pronoun- yeah. I mean, Me neither. <laughs> yeah. That, she was really exciting to watch. I mean, she beat Australia's best. She beat Sam Kerr off of the, the winning header off that corner kick in stoppage time, which was her second goal of the game and could have been her third goal of the game, but her first was called back from being offsides. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I mean, Italy beat Australia two to one, which was a surprise. Um, and similarly, 
to Argentina, like Italy's men's team is is a power, but we don't know too much about you know the women's side, which is making its first World Cup appearance since 1999. Um, and and Barbara Bonancia was she was all over the field for Italy, um, and she immediately made this group more interesting. I think um, given the fact that they. Probably, I mean, we don't know what Marta's status is for the rest of the group stage. Um, assuming that she does play, I, I think. Um, I mean, Italy maybe got their toughest opponent out of the way by beating Australia. They still have to play Brasilia and Jamaica. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if they, if they win this group or they get out and get into the knockout stage, um, I think that Italy... Um, becomes a sneaky team in the knockout stage, just mm-hmm. given her her talent. And I think that um, when we've talked in the past about so many teams catching up to the U.S., Italy maybe was a few years away, but I think that they proved with the win over Australia that maybe they are closer than maybe they were thought to be. Yeah, I, I, if I'm being honest, I, I like to say I prepare for these tournaments like this I knew a little bit about Italy. I didn't know a lot about Italy, and I didn't really expect much out of them. And I thought they played a terrific game against Australia, and they deserved to win. Um, so Bonansea really stood out to me, too. I would also stay in that group and, and say Sidney Schneider, the goalkeeper for Jamaica. Oh, yeah. And I know Jamaica lost 3 nothing, but Schneider's just 19 years old. She plays at the, uh, I think it's University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Yep. And she had this epic first half where she made just a series of saves, including a penalty kick save, to keep her team in the game. And um, that's a pretty tough environment to come into playing Brazil as a 19-year-old in a World Cup. And uh, was really impressed with her. Um, and then another 19-year-old, uh, uh, Julia Gavin of uh, Germany, scored their game winner. Uh, when they beat China one nothing, It was kind of an ugly game, but at least an interesting game at times. Uh, unfortunately for Germany, their star player, Jennifer Marjan, appears to be out for the group stage, they said, and maybe the whole tournament with a broken toe that came from a really brutal tackle from uh, China's Wang Shanshan, which uh, the Chinese really made, I thought, a conscious decision to... Uh, to play a very physical game, and I thought they went over the line a few times. But, um, yeah, that's that's what's kind of stood out to me so far. I think, you know, now that the games are going, they're coming fast and furious, and uh, I'm trying to see as many as I can, uh, and I, I'm doing okay so far. How about you? Uh, doing okay. Um, yeah, I think so far this has been the... The U.S. I mean, I wouldn't say the most surprising, just maybe most just like I was taken aback. Like I just didn't expect the U.S. to score 13 goals. I mean, especially after after France's dominating win a few days ago, I thought they had looked the best. And now I'm even more excited for them to be on a crash course to meet in, in the quarterfinal. Um, but yeah, I think I mean, I've tried to watch almost every single one. I think I may be didn't catch the full full game of some but um but yeah are, are you're not i mean how are you watching on the on the fox set or like where's your your viewing uh how's your what's your viewing situation like so it depends where i am so to make a very long story short i am 
on the ground for all the U.S. games on the day of and day before, and otherwise I'm at the Fox set in Paris. And so obviously if I'm on the set, it's easy to watch right. the Fox broadcast. But actually, because I finally figured out VPN after many, many <laughs> years, I am able to access the Fox broadcast on my laptop. And so that's what I've been doing. And, I, and I'll record all of the games so that if I miss any for whatever reason, I can kind of catch up uh, later on. But there's so many games that, you know, you can only do that so much. But I do think it's important to, if we're going to, you know, discuss the tournament at large, or if I want to name a best 11 at the end of the tournament that I've seen as many games as possible so I can do that, right. you know? Um, at least for you, they're at, um, <laughs> not at, some of them are very, or not, well, you know, during the commuting hours of, of the of the morning, <laughs> I think True. that today's uh, New Zealand Netherlands game was at nine a.m. or Eastern. Uh, yeah, so nine a.m. Eastern, <laughs> uh, three p.m. where I am. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely easier if you're over here. Um, but it, it was interesting to see how many Americans were in this town. We're in Reims, uh, which is like an hour train ride outside of Paris. Um, and you know that stadium was was basically full tonight, and Americans sort of took over the town to the point where I tweeted about this earlier in the day. I was in a restaurant for lunch, and like eighty twelve year old American girls and a few of their parents like came in as one group That's and like awesome. took over the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just sort of overwhelming when something like that happens. But kind of cool actually too, because you realize. Um, they must be having a, a pretty cool life experience, those kids, to be able to come here to a World Cup. For sure. But um, cool. So I think the listeners know this. We are going to be coming in with a new podcast episode right after every U.S. game. So the next game is against Chile. Um, and that's going to be in Paris. Uh, I'm trying to remember what day that is. It's I on Sunday. This. Okay. At Sunday. noon Eastern, which okay. is, I think, six. 6 p.m. your time? I think yes. it's six hours ahead, yes. And that should be a sellout as well, so it should be a good atmosphere in Paris. But, Lakin, thanks so much for joining me. It's always good to talk to you. Yes, you too. Um, have a good time writing uh, your story next. <laughs> I'm, go I'm going to do that literally right now. <laughs> Big thanks to Lakin Littman. Next up is my interview with Caitlin Murray about her book, The National Team. Joining me now is Caitlin Murray. She's a veteran soccer writer and the author of the terrific new book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. It's about the U.S. women's national team. Caitlin, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, first off, uh, I want to thank you properly for being such a prominent voice on the throwback podcast series uh, that was about the origins of the U.S. women's national team and the Women's World Cup from FIFA. I, a lot of that came from this book, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to talk to you now a little bit more about how you put this book together. First off, just congratulations on it. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I've loved the throwback podcast because I feel like it has taken some of the things that were in my book and sort of expanded upon them. And, you know, you were able to bring in other voices and audio clips. So it was actually really cool to listen to that and really fun to be a part of. Awesome. Uh, I encourage everyone to read your book, The National Team. Um, it is 
for me, uh, something that I probably learned more about the history of the U.S. women's national team from your book than from any single other thing I've ever read. So I, th I think um, it's a really cool thing. I'm just curious to know how did this book come about in the first place? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when we think about the U.S. women's national team, they are so dominant and they are probably one of the most important women's sports teams in the world. And certainly in the U.S., I think they're, you know, one of the winningness and one of the most successful teams. And I don't know that anyone had ever really done justice to the team in terms of doing a deep dive into their history and kind of looking at how the team came to be what it is. So with the 2019 Women's World Cup approaching, it was just, you know, a really good time to try to do that. And I feel like sort of the timing worked out perfectly because something I was really interested in when I approached this was looking at some of the off the field stuff, the equal pay fights, um, some of the things the team went through in the early days. And the timing just kind of worked out perfectly with where the conversation is kind of just in culture right now talking about some of these issues. Um, so it seemed like a really good time to go back and look through the lens of the national team of how some of these things have changed too. So even though the book is a lot of soccer and I talk about all the tournaments and, you know, I have to thank you because your reporting uh, came in handy in this book in a lot of different places because uh, you went to a lot of these tournaments that I certainly was not at. Um, there's a lot of soccer in the book, but I think some of the most interesting stuff is the stuff that we're still talking about today. It's the players standing up and fighting for themselves and, um, you know, pushing against the status quo. It's funny to me. I mean, I appreciate what you said. Like, I actually learned more from your book about certain things I had covered. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't believe that. <laughs> can, uh, can I give you, can I, I don't want to spoil everything here, but there's like one specific thing in the 2004 Olympics when <laughs> I had broken a story during the reporting of, of that tournament, which the U.S. won, by the way, mm -hmm. um, that several months earlier before the tournament that uh, basically Brandy Chastain had gone to Dr. Bob, Bob Contagulia, the U.S. soccer president, and tried to get the coach, April Heinrichs, fired. Mm -hmm. And that she was representing, uh, you know, the veterans on the team in many ways with that. And But what I did not know, and what I only learned many years later reading your book, is Cat Whitehill had told you that she had lost her starting spot during the tournament to Brandy Chastain. And basically the implication was, was that this story was coming out and, <laughs> and, and April had an either instruction from above or, or had decided to make this change because of that. Is that, is that accurate? Well, what it was is I spoke to Kat Whitehill about this meeting she had with April Heinrichs where April told her that she was not going to be starting the next game. It was going to be Brandy Chastain, who conspicuously was the only player that had not played up until that point. And, you know, journalists were writing about that. People noticed it. And Kat told me that she asked April why she was losing her starting spot. And 
April Heinrich sort of gave this vague answer about her hand being forced. And at the time, Cat <laughs> Whitehill didn't really think anything about it. She just assumed like maybe some of the veterans complained. And then I explained to her, you know, what you reported and what was actually going on at the time. And it was sort of like a light bulb went off and we were kind of <laughs> in real time in this conversation sort of piecing things together. So, you know, I don't know for a fact. April Heinrichs did not say that, but the timing certainly kind of makes you wonder. It, it was very interesting. Well, what also interesting is they were, U.S. Soccer was aware that I knew this because I had talked to Dr. Bob about it. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, they, it, it, they denied comment. Uh, I'm glad I was able to follow up on your reporting like 25 years later and Brandy admitted to me that she did in fact have that meeting that she would not confirm for you in 2004. <laughs> I mean, that's what's something that's interesting about the timing of your book. And I, and I think it's another reason why it was a good time to write it is I think the way sometimes history works is enough time has to pass so that it's almost like the phrase I would use is, now the story can be told. Mm-hmm. And did you find that to be the case in a lot of this stuff where maybe some of the stories, you got some great stories from people about things that had really happened behind the scenes, whether it was labor negotiations or stuff like during big tournaments like 04, that enough time had passed that you could, that they would be a little more, or they would be just you know more willing to tell you what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there uh, there was a meeting that happened with Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Dr. Bob, again, um, where they sort of told him off <laughs> to his face. And I think uh, I heard your preview for uh, the next throwback episode. I think you might get into that as well. But that's certainly the type of thing that the further away you get from that, the more willing you are to talk about it. I mean, one thing the both of us have also reported is that the team, this current team, tried to, uh, you know, maybe push out Jill Ellis. And Mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing that no one is going to talk about that now. I have spoken to many sources, reached out to a lot of people, gotten confirmation, but no one is really willing to talk about exactly how that went down or really elaborate on the story. I just kind of, you know, I know that it happened. I know some basic details of the circumstances, but not really enough to paint a full picture. Whereas something that happened in the 90s, I was able in this book to talk to people and have them sort of walk me through, okay, where were you? Who was in the room? Uh, Really walk me through it because you know, what do you have to lose, <laughs> lose at this point? I mean, it's so, it's so long ago that I think at this point, everyone's sort of over uh, <laughs> these things that happened. It's pretty incredible, though, because the exchange that you refer to with Mia Hamm, it, it took place in 99, right after they had won the Women's World Cup in the U.S. and became this cultural phenomenon. And the U.S., players had announced they were going to go on this victory tour of indoor games that U.S. soccer was not part of. They weren't running it. And you tell a really interesting story of how this came about. Julie Foudy, especially, very good at at sharing what led to the players sort of going off on their own and organizing this indoor tour. And Mia Hamm is in a meeting with the president of U.S. soccer and Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm says to 
to Dr. Bob, according to your, your book, if you sue me, I'm willing to never play again for the U.S. national team. And I can only mm-hmm. imagine how big a story that would have been at the time if that <laughs> right. come out. Yeah, it, exactly. was a pretty, it, was, it was a pretty big story for me just reading this. Um, <laughs> Now, how did you piece together that meeting? Were there multiple people who told you about it or was it one person or how did that come together? Yeah, I mean, with a book like this, um, you people's memories are sort of fuzzy. So you try to talk to as many people as you possibly can because a lot of this was just sort of trying to piece together fragments of things people remembered. You know, one thing Julie Foudy remembered really well Maybe John Langle, their lawyer, he didn't really remember that. So it was kind of going back and forth, sharing details, you know, jogging people's memories. And then, you know, they would remember things and talk to me about it. Uh, I also spoke to Bob Contagulia, which uh, I could tell that he knew when I called him that I was going to be asking him about a lot of these things that happened. Um, (laughs) And from that standpoint, I was almost surprised he spoke to me for this book. Um, But he, you know, he confirmed uh, some of these things as well. Um, But it really is about trying to get as many sources as you can, just because also in a book like this, I wanted the style to be maybe a little bit more narrative. You know, when I'm writing a news article, it's a lot of he said, she said, you know, a little bit dry. For a book like this, I wanted to be able to maybe have it be more narrative, um, kind of tell more of a story. Um, so yeah, it's just finding, tracking down as many people as I could and getting them to sell me these stories. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a really well-told tale here. In, in terms of the, the interviews that you did for the book, what was the process like? How many different people did you end up interviewing? I think, um, I, I don't remember the exact, I mean, it was around 100, um, and that was a really interesting challenge, is, um, you know, when I want to talk to a player today, I maybe go through U.S. Soccer, or I go through their club team, and they set up an interview, and it's really simple. A lot of these players have been out of the public eye for decades at this point. It was a lot of, you know, trying to track people down on Facebook, Googling them. Uh, there was a player who was on the 19, the very first team in 1985. I found her by Googling and finding where she worked and calling her office. Uh, so it was a lot of like uh, sleuthing. Uh, you know, I used LexisNexis to find phone numbers for people. I was leaving no stone unturned. Um, and I think, uh, I think, you know, you mentioned. Uh, how it's easier to maybe talk about some of these things that happened a long time ago. And I think part of it also is once the players aren't playing anymore, um, it's easier to open up about these things. Like Hope Solo, I was surprised that she was kind of willing to walk me through what it was like when she was kicked off the team. Um, If she had been on the team, there's no chance that would have happened because my interview with her would have been arranged through U.S. Soccer and they probably would have kept a tight leash on that conversation. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of a process of being creative and figuring out how to contact these people. Were there any figures who maybe aren't as well known who you learned about in the process of interviews for this book that were really influential in the history 
of the the U.S. women's national team? Hmm, that's that's an interesting question. Um, well, I guess I mean John Langle is featured prominently in my book, and yeah. he was really important in helping tell the story because he still has notes on a lot of these things that the team was up oh, wow. to in the '90s, and. People, I don't think people knew necessarily who John Langle was. I mean, he was the team's attorney. He was mostly working behind the scenes. He had been with the team uh, for decades, and he played a pivotal role in you know the CBAs that have been the foundation of what the team CBA is now. Some of the things that we kind of know about that exist within the team, uh, like the pregnancy protection when a player gets pregnant she has an opportunity to win back her spot she's guaranteed to at least be called back in and have the opportunity to prove she still belongs on the team John Langle helped put that together that's actually another interesting story uh, in the book which I didn't know is when Kate Markgraf got pregnant Pia Sundhaga kicked her off the team and there was a big back and forth about whether that was pregnancy discrimination. And John Langle thought she should have sued, and she didn't want to do that. She just wanted to prove that she could win her spot back on the team. And then once she, once she earned her spot back on the team, she, she quit. <laughs> she retired right. uh, just to kind of show Pia that she could do that. Um, but John Langle really had sort of a hand in what this team did for decades and even now still you know now he's taken what he did with the soccer team and now he's doing it for the hockey team they just had a big boycott and they got a lot of concessions from USA Hockey so it's been kind of interesting to see how that's continued on yeah because Langle's an interesting guy you're right so he came on I think around 97 uh, as the U.S. team lawyer and stayed with them until late 2015 and then um, they they pushed him out uh the the younger players and uh i do wonder if given some of the stuff that's happened over the last couple years if some of the players wish langle was back um but i do think and it's obviously been a lot of stuff that's happened since 2015 with the the labor situation just in Mm -hmm. the sense that the players who pushed out langle and pushed in rich nichols then rich nichols got fired and uh, there was a, a more different, yeah. kind of a different approach to to the CBA. I I really think you handle this the labor negotiation history throughout the book extremely well, and you know that goes back to the basically the early '90s, mid '90s onward. Um, and I think when you read this history, it's a lot easier. I as someone who follows the team to understand the current lawsuit uh, against U.S. soccer from the players on gender discrimination because this really literally lasted for years and years what the women's national team felt was unfair treatment from U.S. soccer. And they, they learned over the years that really the only way to make progress was to play hardball, right? Yeah. Actually, one thing that I don't think, I couldn't find any record of this have ever been reported or talked about. In 2005, the U.S. Olympic Committee actually stepped in and told U.S. soccer to 
stop treating the women's team so poorly. Uh, the dispute at the time, U.S. soccer wanted to go dark. They wanted to not schedule any more games for the women's national team that year. And the contracts at that point meant that if they didn't play games, they weren't going to be paid. And the women obviously were upset about that. They didn't have a league at that point, and they wanted to be professional soccer players year-round. And if U.S. soccer wasn't going to schedule any games, what did that mean for their career? There, there was nothing else for the women to do. There were no options. And there was a big sort of back and forth about that, and the U.S. Olympic Committee had to get involved. Um, and the, there was uh, John Langle wrote this scathing letter where he accused U.S. soccer of being an old boys club and backroom politics and not even wanting to have a women's national team. I mean, it was just an absolutely brutal letter to the USOC and the Olympic Committee had to get involved. And I think there's been sort of a steady escalation over the years of the tactics uh, that have been used. I mean, now you know, we have the players suing U.S. soccer outright in a very public way. I think that's one of the things that is interesting is there's a lot of discussion now about equal pay and it's very public. But I didn't realize going into working on this book that behind the scenes, this has actually been happening all along. There have constantly been things that they have been getting in fights with the Federation about. It's just that we didn't really know that it was happening. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a, a really fascinating uh, process over the years just to sort of witness, and, and not just how it's transpired, but how certain players in the history of the women's national team have sort of passed the baton to players to carry on the fight. You know, whether that was Julie Foudy uh, in the 90s to today you see... You know, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, mm-hmm. Becky Sauerbrunn, Kristen Press are sort of the four players that tend to stand out, stand out the most to me on labor issues. Um, now, one thing that came up to me in uh, my interviews with Julie Foudy for my throwback podcast, uh, where she, she was talking about the 95 World Cup, where the U.S. was the defending world champion and they had lost... Uh, or they had lost in the semis in that tournament to Norway and finished third. And, and they really felt like, yeah, they have such high standards, but they felt like that was a failure, that tournament. Um, and she said that she felt like some of the labor distractions or, or talks that were happening were a distraction for the team. Off the field stuff in 95 contributed to their not winning that World Cup. And it was hard for me not to link that to potentially this World Cup where the U.S. women's national team has this lawsuit against U.S. soccer that was filed three months before the World Cup. Um, Is there any chance that if the U.S. women don't win this World Cup that there will be criticism of their timing on this lawsuit? Oh, there will 100% be criticism. Um, I mean, they're being criticized now already just for filing it in the first place. I mean, they're going to be criticized no matter what they do. I think that's pretty safe to say. Um, but certainly, if I mean, if they get knocked out in the quarterfinal, uh, everyone is going to say that they should have focused on soccer 
and not focused on filing lawsuits and getting in fights with the Federation. But I mean, for my book, I remember, you know, asking Becky Sauerbrunn about the uh, EEOC claim that she and four other players filed in 2016. And the fact that shortly after that, the U.S. got knocked out in the quarterfinal of the Olympics, and that was their worst finish in a major tournament ever. And she said, essentially, that people say that, that's sort of the perception, but she doesn't think that it was a distraction, because if you actually look at that game, it's a game of inches. And I watched that game several times when I was writing my book, Carly Lloyd scored what should have been the game winner, and it was called offside, and she wasn't offside. Um, The U.S. outshot Sweden, I think it was like 26 to 3, I want to say, and they had a lot of chances. It was just sort of an unlucky day, and that's what soccer is. Soccer is a game of inches. Anything can happen. It's chaos. I don't think you necessarily watch the Olympics or watch that game against Sweden and say that the U.S. wasn't the better team or that they looked distracted or that they looked out of it. Um, I think you can talk about maybe some of the tactics and some of the decisions that Jill Ellis made. Um, You know, you can look at different things, but I think blaming a lawsuit or blaming fighting for equal pay, um, I just don't know if that's fair. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens in France. I fully expect if the U.S. doesn't do well, that will certainly be the talking point. Speaking with Caitlin Murray, she is the author of the book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Uh, we're wrapping up here. Really appreciate the time on this. Um, a couple more questions, though. One is... These moments of player power over the years with the U.S. women's national team in relation to coaches, I find to be really interesting because uh, back in 04, they had tried to get April Heinrichs fired. It didn't Mm -hmm. work. Uh, And then later it did work. Yeah, it eventually did work. (laughs) (laughs) They were very persistent. (laughs) And then, but, you know, she wasn't the only situation like that. Tom Sermani uh, ended up being fired Mm -hmm. uh, as the result of sort of a player revolt where they went to talk to Sunil Gulati, who was the president of U.S. soccer. Um, and then even Jill Ellis, uh, about uh, over a year ago now, and, had a situation. And Pia Sunhaga, which uh, yes. was an interesting sort of revelation in my book, was the players actually went to U.S. soccer and wanted to get Pia Sunhaga fired, but she... She had so much success that U.S. soccer didn't know what to do with that. Like, I think with Tom Sermani, it was a little bit easier. Oh, the, the team hasn't been playing very well. Okay. With Pia Sunhaga, she was having so much success that U.S. soccer was confused and didn't really know what to do with that. So Pia just essentially left. She just said, okay, I'm going to go back to Sweden and coach Sweden. So it's essentially been every coach for the last several coaches that have been pushed out by the players. So what does that say in your opinion, I guess, about this, the, the culture inside the team? Obviously it says that they, they do have power if they can get a coach fired. They don't succeed every time in trying to get the coach fired, but this is uh, that's a, a pretty common thing to have happen. And I imagine like, some U.S. soccer president, like, if they come to him, just, like, 
oh, here we go again. Right. <laughs> but like, but it's been successful. So like, what's what's happening here? Well, it was funny. When I spoke to Bob Contagulia, he said something that I thought was really astute, which is the players had this mentality where they wanted to fight against everyone. I mean, this was her, his perception, but the way he described it is what made them so good on the field, what made them so competitive on the field was what made them sort of a handful for U.S. soccer off the field. It was that same sort of mentality. Um, I mean... Yeah, these are players who um, are strong personalities. They're winners. That's part of the DNA and the mentality of this team. And I don't know if it's actually that unique to this team. I think you hear a lot about um, on national teams, things like that happening. Um, I mean, I know in the NBA, player empowerment is a big (laughs) movement right now. Um, I think it... You know, it's just sort of the natural, I think, evolution of you get a group of really strong, determined, ambitious individuals together. It's not that surprising that they think they always know best and they want to sort of call the shots. Um, it, It does create some interesting scenarios though and I'm especially interested to see what's going to happen when U.S. soccer does you know get this women's GM position and you know Carlos Cordero has talked about looking at the women's program and sort of taking a full inventory of what they're going to do how that could change um, the dynamic of the players having that sort of power and being able to push coaches out Um, that could be an interesting thing that could sort of change the way that works. Yeah, and I'm just wondering what you think about where that leaves Jill Ellis right now. Here's a coach who won a World Cup, who went out in the quarterfinals of an Olympics, who the year after that had a player revolt, in a sense, uh, but she kept her job. And so do you think that she feels potentially empowered by that? Yeah, I think that when you win a World Cup, I guess you kind of automatically get a contract extension. Um, We see that all the time with coaches who win championships. Then the press release the next few days is always how, you know, the coach has been signed to a contract extension. Because usually coaches don't really last more than one cycle. So that already is sort of unusual. And just to wrap up here... I'm curious to know, what will you be doing during the World Cup? You're coming over to France, right? I am. I still have to pack. (laughs) All my stuff is laying on the ground. I need to actually fit it in my suitcase. Um, But I will be there for the full duration of the tournament for the Guardian, following the U.S. team around wherever they go. Um, Hopefully they make it all the way to the final. I'm going to be a little annoyed if they go to that third place game and I can't just stay in Lyon, Um, but I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a really competitive tournament, and with how good the U.S. attack looks and how many goals they're scoring and with how shaky the defense looks and how many goals they're conceding, I think there are going to be some really fun games with a lot of goals, so uh, I can't wait. Well, uh, looking forward to having you over here. I should say we're recording this interview on at least where I am, March 6th. Uh, so, or June. Sorry, March, June 6th. Uh, <laughs> the tournament starts June 7th, and the U.S. plays its first game on June 11th. K. 
Caitlin Murray is the author of The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. If you care about the U.S. women's national team, trust me, you should buy this book. It will be worth the read. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Lakin Littman and Caitlin Murray, as well as producer Brandon Nix and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember to check out Throwback, my podcast series on the origins of the U.S. Women's National Team and the FIFA Women's World Cup. See you next time.